Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each week. I'm your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. And this is Mike Gavin. And today we are especially happy to be joined by special guest Kevin Valentine. Wow. (laughs) He made me feel special. Yeah, and we're going to be taking an in-depth look at Creatures of the Night by KISS. Before we do that, we like to play a track that uh, each one of us has been associated with in some way. Uh, so, Kevin, what track would you like to play? Oh, I, I guess we could play Aaliyah. I guess it's the most well-known from Donny Ayers. Cool. Right to, don't you know we're playing with the fire? 
And uh, Mike? Uh, I'm going to follow Kevin's lead. I'm going to pick uh, the Donnie Irish and the Cruiser song, That's the Way Love Ought to Be, uh, particularly because I always thought the drum sound on that track sounds really similar to the drums uh, that were on Psycho Circus. It's a really similar sound. It, to me, it just, it's like a, a continuation of that tone. I think it's a really cool tone. So, and it's also a great song. Interesting. That was, that was, that was what I was going to pick. And then I went with the most obvious. Uh-huh. I love that song. I, I kind of like, yeah, yeah. Good choice.
All cool. Right. I'm going to pick Luchador by Dame Fortune because that features uh-huh. Kevin Valentine on drums oh, and my uh, Mike Gavigan on vocals and also lead theremin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got to have a gimmick, right? <laughs> yeah. songs or uh anything that you've all played on so we'll just do the ballad of johnny blowtorch and that's been apparently added to three stations in canada so i'm sure it's all because of this podcast fantastic Great. 
showing and when you last slept in a bed There's no knowing Your reading garbage, your complexion is spotty And your chiseled physique now hangs over your body Your barrel's empty and you're scraping the bottom And the things that you're looking for, nobody's gonna Here comes a face from your past, don't pretend you don't see me Get lucky and score, you wanna be me Creatures of the Night. Uh, Gene and Paul are calling A-list producers who are not returning their phone calls. So they decide to work with Michael James Jackson, who just produced the four songs on the uh, Best of Album Killers. And without a permanent guitarist, they, along with relatively new drummer Eric Carr, go into the recording studio in July of 1982, um, sort of auditioning guitar players uh, and recording them for the record as they go. Jackson emphasizes the drums in a way no Kiss album has before or since. Uh, Gene and Paul, longtime fans of Bonham, finally have a drummer who's a bombastic powerhouse capable of capturing that feel. And Jackson uses production techniques like remiking speakers and empty elevator shafts to uh, make the drums sound as massive as possible. Kiss walk a delicate balance. On one hand, they want to recapture the heaviness and hard rock of their early roots without simply regurgitating the songs from their previous success. And they also want to sound modern enough to appeal to the new generation of hard rock fans without coming across as being unduly influenced by the new wave of metal bands. So I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that commercially, this is a do or die album for the band. The Elder sold worse than any album previously. And uh, Gene and Paul's backs are up against the wall on this one. They managed to pull it off with an album that is an almost perfect balance between the yin and yang of Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. Kevin, I know you knew Eric Singer growing up in Cleveland. Yes. 
Um, were you aware of Eric Carr? Did you ever cross paths with him along the way? Um, I did not. Uh, and as you mentioned, Eric and I are not only from the same city, but from the same high school. I think Eric was, Eric Singer was yeah. a couple years behind me. So he got to uh, go to the dance and see me playing in a band and he got all jazzed up. So I'm really responsible for his whole career. <laughs> little does any, little does anyone know. No, uh, Eric's wonderful, and he's responsible for his career. Uh, yeah, yeah. We uh, no, I did not know Eric Carr. The the closest I got to uh, anything to do with him was uh, when um, Eric Singer was playing on the Hot in the Shade demos, if you will, mm-hmm. and he had to go on a tour, I think, with Cooper, so he couldn't finish. He recommended me. I did, uh, well, they were all Paul songs, I think. And um, I found out later um, that Eric was pissed off because he wasn't involved in mm. the demos. And and right, rightly so. And he had to just go ahead and, you know, replace my, my parts, my drums, which is always, uh, you know, not a pleasant thing to to redo someone else's parts, but if the whole song is built on those parts, you got to kind of you got to got to do you got to do the parts. You know, it's the foundation of the song. Uh, but no, I never 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 got to meet him. No, okay. I wish I had. So you just inadvertently pissed him off, but that <laughs> right. And you know, I, I just stepped. I just did this, this first thing, uh, uh, first experience with Kiss. I didn't know what was going on. Do you want to play any song? Sure, I do. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I didn't know one from the other. I just played on the songs and was happy to do so. Sure, sure. And on a related note, also a little known fact, uh, Kevin was also in a band uh, named Breathless that had opened uh, to Kiss on the 1979 Dynasty Tour. Yes, that was an experience. Because <laughs> yeah, you did a lot, a lot of dates in either Texas or California on that tour, right? Correct. Yeah, it was like Texas West. There was a there were quite a few secondary cities, but we got to play the Forum in L.A. Wow. and wow. and uh, yeah, it was, that was the first that was the first band I was in where we had a record deal, and you know you're opening before Kiss, and let's face it, if you're opening before Kiss, no one cares who you are. They just want to <laughs> Kiss. It's it's that simple. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, we had a percussion player in the band. I, I always tell the story because I think it's quite comical. Um, and uh, we would enter stage, let's see, at the forum, we were stage right. So uh, house lights, you know, people screaming for Kiss, and we would walk past, well, we would walk up onto the stage, and as we're walking just onto the stage, we'd hear the Kiss fans yelling, Kiss, 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 <laughs> you know, and that's, that's tough. So I had my sticks with me. I was warming up in the in the uh, dressing room, and I would I would hit uh, the percussion player's gong, just enough noise to stop the people from you know chanting "kiss" to give us a chance to get up there and start playing our set. Yeah. So yes, we did uh, open for Kiss, and uh, Gene yelled at our guitar player because he had another band's uh, name on his T-shirt. Ah, you know, that's, that sounds like him, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, uh, yeah, why are you promoting this other band? And he said, well, I like them. He said, you should promote your own band, of course. Yeah. 
you know, it's, it's typical gene, nothing out of the ordinary. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it, it was enlightening to to uh, to do big tours like that. I mean, it's you know, it's just it's a slap in the face. You just get up there and and you're on you're you know, it's like stepping onto the freeway from on foot, and all of a sudden you're doing sixty miles an hour, <laughs> seventy miles an hour in a in a a heartbeat. You know, lights. You know, back then there were more. Uh, spotlights and you know you're blinded by them and it was um it's pretty fucking cool I, yeah. Kevin, I, I do have to ask i mean i because dave and i saw the the uh the dynasty tour but we saw it in pittsburgh so we didn't see you open uh that show but nonetheless uh-huh. i mean from your perspective because you know obviously you know we're a different age those shows had to be incredibly loud in terms of volume and, and power right you mean for the band yeah i mean from, just, from yeah oh yeah yeah it was insane uh, we had to, well, not me because I wasn't singing, but the, the frontline guys had to use their monitors. And Gene, I think he had a, like a double 15 and a double horn driver wow. in a floor wedge. <laughs> and it was nothing but tear your head off. You know, it was like, a, it was a hundred DB of tear your head off. Wow. Uh, but I guess, yeah, it was loud. Yeah. They, I, I would, I would, uh, I would go hang out at the soundboard. I made friends with the guy and the, the, the engineer, and uh, I watched them pull the master fader down when, when the concussion bombs would go off, because <laughs> because if they, if they didn't do that, uh, they they and they did have this problem. They blew out all the speakers. Oh wow! Because wow. yeah, because it's pure concussion, and um, that shock wave hits you know. 15 mics on the stage, they all amplified and you launch speakers. Wow. So yeah, I'd watch, I'd watch him, you know, he, he'd hit the bong and then he'd bring the volume up and bong and he'd bring the volume up to uh, blend it back in. Uh, he actually let me ride a solo one time. You know, I said, let me, let me, let me turn up to a solo. He says, come on. So I'm up there like turning that bass solo. It was, it was fun. Ah, how fun. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, good guys, good crew. I mean, I don't think we ever met. Uh, I think we might have said hello to Gene and Paul. Oh, I have another story about his guitar. Um, but uh, that's when uh, uh, that's when you know uh, they were, they were having some serious drug problems in the in the band mm-hmm. and. And uh, one afternoon they were testing a, a Prophet Five. Remember Prophet Five, the uh, keyboards? Uh, keyboards, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were using one. They brought one in just to make the explosion sound for, for I think Ace's uh, rockets. You know, with his bottle rockets where he would shoot and they'd explode in the air. Yeah. So that they spent like six grand on this thing just to make an explosion sound. Uh, and we were, we were, we were really flipping out about that because our keyboard player had one, but you know, like you're, you're, you're taking this $6,000 keyboard, not that it didn't do well and, and make an explosion sound. We thought it was, we thought it was, well, you got to have a lot of money to do that. But, uh, Peter was in his bathrobe, uh, walking in the arena, listening to the, uh, the explosion sounds and yeah, he was looking rough. I felt uh. bad for him. Yeah. I feel bad for anyone that, uh, you know, has, has any kind of uh, addiction problems. It's, 
you know, just think about it. If you're, if, you know, you're a member of KISS or, or any big band or even a small band, we, we all know how much fun it is to play for in a club. And, uh, and he's just pissing it away. I, I felt so bad that wow. he was just ruining his life. But he got back in the band later, as we know. Yeah. yeah. Oh, in yeah. fact, today's his 75th birthday, so. Really? Shout out for Peter Chris, yeah. All right. Well, God bless him. He's, he, uh, he made it this far. He deserves credit for that. So back to the guitar. The, uh, the roadies left uh, Paul's guitar somewhere, and we ended up picking it up and, and uh, taking it to the next gig. And when we got there, we told the crew, hey, we got your guitar. And, but in the meantime, the percussion player, who was a nut, he, uh, he uh, like wrapped himself up in toilet paper and was posing with Paul's guitar, doing rock poses with it, you know? And <laughs> I, told, uh, I told Paul much later about it. He, he thought it was amusing. Wow. <laughs> what are you going to do, right? Yeah. Crazy times. Yeah. Okay. So uh, back to Eric Singer. Yeah, we're, we're buds. He's a good guy. He's a great guy. Uh, I'm so glad that he's in KISS for this long. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Like a new guy. He's, he's a new guy, and he's been in the band for like 50 years, right? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. So first track, Creatures of the Night. Yeah, first off, I want to say that um, I think Eric... Uh, Carr did a good job on the whole record. I mean, I thought he he was uh, he was doing he just did a great job on the whole record. Uh, sounds like under some stressed circumstances, with not having a guitar player and and uh, you know the 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 band being kind of not so popular at the time. Uh, <clears throat> but you, you know what I was uh, you know what I was I was bumping on was now did Vinny play guitar on this whole record? He he plays a lot of the leads, not all of them. There's about three cuts at least that have other lead guitar players on them. Yeah, there there are several songs that he co-wrote, uh, but then Vinny, in terms of uh, his lead guitar work, he's on songs like "Satan Sinner," "Keep Me Coming," "Danger," "I Love It Loud," "Killer," and "War Machine." And then there are other session yeah. guys that are on other songs on the record. And who's playing rhythm guitar? Uh. Paul's playing rhythm guitar on most of it. I think Adam Mitchell uh, replaced it a little bit on uh, uh, Midway Through Creatures, actually. Yeah, I think those sort of like solo spots that aren't really a solo, it's sort of like a you know, release into the, the next part of the verse. I think that might be Adam from what I've read. Yeah. Things. Okay, so then I thought it was Vinny playing rhythm guitar. I, I, I really bumped on the rhythm guitar tracks. Yeah. Sorry, Paul. I, I don't know if he'll... I don't know if they'll ever hear this, but I still love you, Paul. But it, it was very uh, stock and very, um, oh, gosh, I hate to use all these words, but generic. There wasn't a whole lot of feel to it. And, and you know, when I first started listening to these, I thought, wow, Ace sounds totally different. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm thinking, where's he, where's he getting this solo sound from? He doesn't play like that. And I was actually... Uh, kind of thinking why uh, I really miss him on this record. Okay, so uh, that, I see. So they were kind of struggling a bit with players and things of that sort. Um, uh, gosh, I don't know how to, besides uh, 
besides uh, saying that he did a good job, uh, you know, I'm a fan of, uh, this is an, that's actually another negative. Um, I'm a fan of room on drums, right? I mean, yeah. all drum, but um, I thought that it was too much room, except for some of the tunes like loud and, and like War Machine or something like that. And and what I mean by that is this. God, I sound like a bitch. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think there was too much. And and I listened to some other records right after this record, and I realized what it was doing was there was a lot of mid-range in the, the room tracks, and it was really eating, eating into the vocal quite a bit. And I thought that, uh, Gene and Paul weren't standing out like normal, and and that's probably the reason why. Um, and the and the and the second thing was um, when you have oh God, we're getting dweeby here with this stuff. But when you have room on when you have room on a kit, um, there's a lot of people that used room on drums that you wouldn't um, consider having that kind of a sound like for instance like a springsteen song like uh mm-hmm. like born in in the usa there, there's gobs of verb i mean sorry there's gobs of room on that kid but not on the kick drum mm-hmm. you see uh, okay. and and when you when you start getting the kick into the mix then you then you start to get you sound heavy but maybe i know that's what they're going for they wanted to get heavy right and I thought it took away from the Kiss vibe. You know what I mean? I mean, it, it would kind of be like, um, well, any other band, you, you can't have that much uh, kick and snare in the room. There's no control. Well, actually, it sounds like you said there is control because they fed it into other rooms. But that also, I mean, it didn't, it didn't, uh, it took away from the Kiss sound to me. Well, I agree, I agree with you that it's it's not a, a particularly balanced sounding record. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think when, whenever you emphasize one instrument that much, um, the only way to do it is by expanding the frequency range that that instrument is taking up. And that naturally right. leaves less frequency range for the guitars, for the vocals. Um, yeah. You know, I, I did an experiment one time when I was recording a song where I said, I'm going to get the best bass tone I can possibly get in this song. And I was, I was really scientific about it. I went, you know, okay, what key is the song in? What, what notes are used? You know, I'm going to EQ all of the overtones on top of the bass to bring everything out. And I got a gorgeous sounding bass sound, but uh, yeah. the guitar sounded anemic the vocals sounded small <laughs> and I sure. couldn't, I couldn't bring the mix into balance. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the things that's going on with this record. Like I, I, I think it's got a cool sound to it, but I certainly mm-hmm. wouldn't want every kiss album to sound like this. Yeah. 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 It took, it took, yeah. It, to me, it took the band out of the kiss sound, but that's what they were going for. You know, they were, they were searching a little bit, and uh, it certainly is a good drum sound, but I don't think it fits that well. Or maybe even turn the rooms down. Meanwhile, the producer or the engineer is going to hear this, and he's going to come hunting for me. <laughs> <laughs> he's got his bow and, bow and arrow and some guns, and he's coming over my house. <laughs> so, 
the song is the song is great. Uh, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, Eric did a great job. I just think that it sounds like most of this stuff was cut with a click. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. And the only reason I say that is when he's doing his his those accents, they're really right on time. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And uh, and um, I think if uh, you were playing without a click, you would you would they would be a little behind, you know, and maybe a little more accented, but he's right on the money, which is to his credit for playing to a click. It's funny you mentioned those accents because that's one thing I noticed listening to this album today is that almost every song on this album (laughs) uses those same accents as a transition at some point. It's in I Love It Loud, it's in Saint and Sinner, it's in Danger, that thing that's in almost every song. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, he played it well. Yeah, and it's tight too because even at the points too where they do the transition into the chorus, just those you know solid wow wow. I mean, if you crank it up in the car, it's it's still clean. There's just enough decay where it doesn't you know get you know washy in terms of mix. But it's yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's a, it's a hammer to the head in a way. But uh, I agree that the room sound is it's cool for what it is. But it, you know, I can see where you know you you could say it's a bit much, and you could probably want to dial that back a bit. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting that you say that because I am not a drummer at all. And um, the thing that I came away from this album is this is a massive drum album, but it's like, you know what I mean? Like, that's the most important thing before I even read that that's what the producer wanted to do. Yeah. Um, But it's definitely interesting because sometimes the drums almost sound sometimes a little bit underwater even or you know what i mean i mean they're there yeah. and they're tight and then, but they're they're huge they're just yeah. all over the place they're, yeah they are the album yeah so it's interesting that you say i didn't even pick that up until um i read and then i read about the album and they said the producer wanted to do that with the drum tracks or whatever yeah so that's that's an interesting yeah but, way to look at it plus it fits slower tempo songs like loud it's it's you know there's tons of room in there for the for the decay of the drums really fits that song well uh and up-tempo things like Creature of the Night, Creatures of the Night. Uh, normally, you gotta, you, you, you don't have to do anything, but <laughs> normally on faster, well, you know, it's all taste. Uh, normally on faster tunes, you dial down the room because it would keep the song a little tighter, you know. But hey, we weren't there; they made the record, we didn't. So yeah. damn it, there you have it. Yeah. Yeah, well, you're like blowing my mind now. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, because there's so much echo going on and so forth. Well, think about this, though, too. We compare this to a song like Zeppelin's uh, Achilles' Last Stand. You know, I think it's on Presence, right? It's the same thing, where it's like an up-tempo thing, but it's a similar mix, whereas I think, you know, the Kiss album sounds a little bigger. You know, not to say that, you know, Kiss is bigger than Zeppelin, but you know what I mean? Like, the production on Presence is kind of, you know, out there. It's not, it's not as immediate, uh, but whereas I think they're trying yeah. to do something bigger with this record. When I hear Creatures, I always think back to Achilles last stand for some reason. Mm. Yeah. But remember, Bonham's drums, uh, the drums themselves and the recordings were far more mid-rangey. Yeah. So th- it didn't have that bombastic bottom end that, that has hang time. Yeah. And um, you don't, the, the room mics, have less energy and they and they blend in better whereas they were really going for some hammered you know serious top and bottom on the drums and and uh, they have mm-hmm. more they have more impact so uh you have to be careful with what you do with them you know and i'm curious too because i did some research it looks like they recorded the drums at, at uh record one which I, I don't know if that's ocean way i think it's in the valley mm. 
here, but I don't know if they did any um, uh, rhythm tracks or scratch tracks there, because yeah, it seems like they recorded at the record plant, but it, maybe they just did drums at record one and then other tracks when it, being like instruments and vocals at, at the record plant. I don't know. Yeah, so. you guys, yeah. you guys know more than you guys know everything. I only know <laughs> bits, bits and pieces. Well, um, one of the things about this track that I think is interesting is there's a song called Night Creatures by mm -hmm. uh, kind of somewhat obscure uh, 1970s glam band that was kind of Bowie-esque called Cowboy Bebop, right? Wow. And it's, it, the lyrics to this song, this came out in 1974, are Night Creatures, Strangest Features, White Faces and Painted Eyes, Tongue teasers, oh so young deceivers, night creatures on your heels so high. Now, if that doesn't sound like they're just writing a song about Kiss, I don't know what does. It's kind of uncanny. Although I, you know, I don't know that they would have even even known about Kiss in 1974 yeah. beyond maybe the album had just come out. Sure. Yeah. Unless they were. Unless they were locals and they saw the band you know, playing but also, in clubs. But also, too, on a similar note, there, uh, if you look at the, the cover of the record, uh, it's very similar to a book that came out in 1979 under the title of I Can Read About Creatures of the Night. Yes. And you have this sort of, you know, animals like, you know, right. foxes and raccoons, and you've got the glowing eyes. And even like the font of the words Creatures of the Night is similar to what is on, you know, the Kiss records. It's, it's almost uncanny, again, where you have this, this sort of similarity. Mm. This, this is also the first time that Paul has ever, I mean, Kiss writes 99% of their songs in, in the first person singular, right? This mm. is the first time that, that you know, he's written a song where he's talking about the band, ostensibly. We, we're the creatures of the night. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think it's, it's very much a reflection of uh, the band's uh, position at that time future deep in doubt. Their future was certainly very deep in doubt uh, at the time. Um, you know, if I have a criticism of this song, it's that the pivotal line in the song comes too soon. Um, the, uh, to me, the, the most interesting line, the line that kind of sums it all up is, remember when the clock strikes 12, the losers always win. And that comes at the end of the second verse instead of the third verse. And mm. I think it's so interesting because, you know, in a lot of ways, rock and roll is kind of this safety valve, right? Where, um, like in the Middle Ages, you would have kingdoms where uh, they would do a festival one day a year where the poorest people in the town would eat a feast of kings and the, and the royalty would wait on them. And it was kind of seen as a way to alleviate the social pressure right? The mm -hmm. beggar's banquet, the beggar's ball. Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, that's kind of what rock and roll is, where we, for a night or two, exalt the poor, the lower middle class, um, and put them on a pedestal, on a stage, um, worship them instead of, you know, the normal uh, type of, of rich upper class person that's worshipped in society. And in the case of Kiss, specifically, it's the misfits, the weirdos, you know, the ones who grew up loving science fiction and fantasy and horror and comics and superheroes and Halloween. Um, and, you know, so 
Okay, a little inside baseball here. I knew a guy <laughs> that was involved in the KISS camp, and I'm not going to say his name because I don't want to get him in trouble. But, um, Fair enough. But, but his name means yeah. <laughs> But uh, he told me that, you know, while KISS loves their fans and uh, obviously they have a very special relationship with their fans, there is kind of a bonehead contingency to any hard rock metal band in terms of their fan base that I'm sure at, mm -hmm. at times is slightly disturbing for guys who are intelligent and educated as Paul and Gene are. Um, and that Paul would upon occasion refer to that contingency of KISS fans as the losers. And <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I think that that is where that line, uh, probably the impetus for that line comes from, but it works on, it works on multiple levels. And, uh, you know, it also, I mean, Kiss was largely perceived as, as there's a whole article in the seventies kind of famous article where they said, you know, Kiss the Rocky Balboa of, uh, rock bands, right. Um, the, yeah. the underdogs, lower class kids, you know, that, uh, that grew up in the Brooklyn and the Bronx and were, some of them were immigrants. And so, you know, I think, I think the song works because it works on those different levels. Yeah. Yeah. Very well, very well said. Yeah. On a personal note, this is a, this is a per, I mean, this is a song that I have always taken to heart as something that sort of, you know, uh, is an anthem of my own. You know what I mean? Something that I will find myself singing as I'm trying to get through whatever I've got to get through. You know mm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. I mean, it's, I mean, lyrically, the song is, like, this album has tons of songs on it that speak to me as the nerd in school whose only safety valve was metal. You know what I mean? And this was sort of his escape. Um, you know, this, this has elements of, like, The Last in Line by Ronnie James Dio, stuff like that. You know, songs that empower me as a person. Now, I know that Paul didn't write all the lyrics to it or whatever, but still, it's 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 Kiss saying, welcome to the club. You know what I mean? You're one mm -hmm. of us now. Right. That's that's the way I already, I always took it, you know, is that it was sort of like a anthem for, you know, the losers who are going to win and the people that are living in a whisper, you know what I mean? And things like that. Right, that's, which that's that line always makes me think of the band themselves because they're always so soft-spoken when you see them in interviews. I mean, there's like a 180 degree difference between Paul Stanley on stage rapping and then talking in an interview. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, all right. You know, keeping with my yin-yang theory, obviously the counterpart to <laughs> this, this, this Paul song is I Love It Loud, and it's interesting that they have a dichotomy about alibis, right? Uh, mm. Paul says, keep your alibis. Gene says, no more alibis. And supposedly... Gene's not particularly fond of this song, and Paul's not that fond of I Love It Loud. So we'll, we'll get back to that. Uh, well, there's, uh, there's the, yeah, like you said, there's the balance. There's the partnership. And, and a few cool things about the song itself. I mean, I know, obviously, you know, Paul um, has said he's influenced by uh, Pete Townsend from The Who. I always thought that the bridge of this song sounds like something that Pete Townsend would have, would have played. Um, you know, it, it's a really cool part. Uh, yeah. Um, and interesting too that I, apparently it's not Gene Simmons playing bass in this track. It's Mike uh, Procaro from uh, Toto playing bass. Oh, is that right? 
Yeah, and the solo on this song is uh, played by Steve Harris, who was later in Mr. Mister. Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. Why didn't but, Gene play on this, I wonder? Uh, in a book I read, he said basically, you know, it seems sort of dismissive. I think he's saying, I looked down and there was a guy in the studio and he was playing the bass part and it sounded okay to me, so I said, go ahead and play it, you know, quote unquote. So. Right. Wikipedia says he had just broken up with Diana Ross and wasn't in the mood to play on some of the tracks. Uh, yeah. Know. <laughs> you know what? Even on uh, uh, the blah, blah, Cycle Circus, I, I, I was surprised where he would just let someone else do the bass part. And, he, and you would think he would want to you know, be involved and say, I'm a, let's do this. And, and speaking of bass, I, I listened to so many albums from the band uh, around this, this recording. And I, got, I, I just love his bass sound and what he's doing. It's just, it's just yeah. fucking guttural. I mean, yeah. Uh-huh. The chunk of chunk that he's got. A little yeah. bit of distortion on it, but it's yeah. clean. Yeah, I love it. He's got a nice fill in the next song, I think, if I, uh, yeah, whatever, when we move on to the next song. But yeah, that's interesting you say that, because this is this, his bass parts really stand out for me on this, even though they're not particularly, I maintain that Gene is a bass player that's influenced a lot by Motown and stuff like that. He does a lot of walking lines. Right. He's one of the few oh, yeah. sort of Always. hard rock, hard rock bass that sort of used that kind of style mm-hmm. in his playing. Um, and then this album, though, he sort of falls to that, what I call the 80s metal bass player, which is a lot of straight aiding and a couple of, yeah. you know what I mean, and stuff like yeah. that. But I actually kind of dig in places he pops out. I mean, well, we'll talk about it later. Go ahead, no, we'll uh, move on to Saint and Sinner. Yeah, I, I, good. yeah, I agree with you on that. Uh, yeah, the whole record sounded, had that 80s sound, you know. Remind me of, some, yeah. of, some of this reminded me of Dio. You know, and I'll, I'll just say, you know, um, in summary, obviously they felt strong enough about this song because it was the opening song for their set uh, when they were, were touring behind this album. So, you know, they felt strongly about it, you know. Yeah, I know I've seen them live and open with this song yeah. before. Yeah. I mean, this song, you know, this song is like one of my favorite Kiss songs ever. It, it is, a, it is just, a barnstormer of an opener. Yeah, yeah. well, the, lyrically, it's, it really spoke to me as a teenager. You know what I mean? I mean, it really, particularly, you know, uh, you know, I, you know, we all, whatever, who cares? I'm a 50 year old man. I can't believe I'm rehashing my high yeah. school experience, but we all felt, you know, felt like the outsider, the weirdo or, you know, that kind of stuff. And it was truly a song that like, um, spoke to me. Yeah. And I've, you know, I've, I've played the song only in sound checks. I've never played it in front of an audience and it's, you know, it's a picture of a song to play. There's a lot of, you know, quick rhythms going down and a lot of weird chord changes and, you know, it's amazing to me when Kiss will open with songs like Detroit Rock City or Creatures of the Night. I mean, those are some of the most complex songs they have in their catalog. Right. You think the, they'd the want to warm up to that. <laughs> Saint and Sinner. Now, I can't tell, but this is a very cool drum part. Um, it sounds like a little double bass thing he's doing. Was he playing double bass? Yes, I think he yeah. the time. I think it was okay, a, a requirement he, at the time of the audition that he did that he played double bass. Oh, well, he goes in and out of it, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I figured, well, he's really got a fast single bass drum going on, or it's a, or it's a double thing. And I really, uh, I really, I admire anyone that could do double bass because I suck at it. And he's going back and forth, you know, from in the groove, uh, some double, some single. Mm-hmm. It's really great. And, and the, uh, 
yeah, with the, the 16th or, or 8th, however you count it on, on the hat, it's a really cool track. I was going to say, it starts with sort of like a, um, like almost like a motorhead riff. You know yeah. what I mean? The, 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 you know what I mean? The way the guitar sounds, it, sound, it reminded me of almost like motorhead. And I know I remember reading that Eric Carr was a big fan of like thrash metal and, and, you know, heavier, heavier metal. And they were, he was sort of introducing Gene and Paul to that kind of stuff. Um, and so I sometimes wonder if that was sort of an influence on the guitar playing there. Could be, I'd buy that. And then it's got, but it's also got a really cool, it starts with a nice, it's got a nice melodic bass fill in there that goes into this like chunka chunka, you know, bass part that he's doing. It's really heavy and really a little bit distorted, but still clean. Do you think this is uh, his Gene playing on this this one, John? Because it's, I mean, the bass part's a lot more active than Gene usually is. Uh, I don't know. Let me look that yeah, up. From what I've seen, I think Gene supposedly played rhythm guitar on Killer and War Machine, but I don't think he played rhythm guitar on this track. Okay, but did he play bass? Uh, did he play bass? I think he. I think he did play bass. The only one that this Haslip guy has admitted to doing is Danger. Uh, mm. Danger. Yeah. 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 The other ones are all saying that he played it, although maybe he didn't play. Yeah, it. but those, those licks that are in between the verses to me sound like Gene Simmons' licks. You know, boom, 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 boom. Yeah, and those those fills sound like Gene yeah. Simmons' fills. They sound like they don't sound like the old the 80s metal bass sound, the studio musician 80s bass sound, you oh, know? Okay. I don't know though, maybe not. Yeah, Dave, I see what you mean about the, the, the second feel where he's on the, the right symbol, he's doing the ups on the right symbol. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a nice rolling feel. Um, yeah. Like it kind of uh, goes I, from being a, a laid back, almost swing feel at the beginning, yeah. and then yeah. to like a much mm -hmm. like more aggressive straight ahead thing, like midway through. Yes. Bum, 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 bum. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great track. Yeah. That boy did a good job. <laughs> the lyrically, the, I'm a saint, you're a sinner, but the deuces are wild. Uh, there was a part of me that was like, what? I mean, I get it. You know, I understand deuces are wild, so things flip and change, but. Uh, well, I think it's also a bit of a self-reference, right? He's the guy that wrote deuce, which is also right, a little yeah, right. vague in terms of absolute meaning. It's like jelly roll. But, um. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, think about this too. We, we talk about the fact that there was obviously turmoil in the band and people were leaving or people were, you know, were not wanting to be in the band. I mean, you know, is there anything to the, to the verse where he says, you know, next to you, I feel I'm all alone, which is a great line. Um, you know, then he goes to see, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to die without you. It's ace is high. Is this a reference to the situation with ace Fraley or is it just coincidence? Yeah, he's extending the the card metaphor for sure. The the thing that I thought first off when I was looking at the song today is there's almost a little pun in the title because the the phrase saint and sinner doesn't actually agree, you know, appear mm -hmm. anywhere in in the song. So, you know, it sounds very similar to Satan sinner, right? Yeah. Which is uh, uh. Seems, seems like that's what they were going for, just a little nod and <laughs> wink there. Um, but they also got a lot of backlash too for this is around the time of you know the beginnings of PMRC and all that sort of stuff. They were accused on the entire tour in all the interviews of being, you know, are you guys knights in Satan's service? Da da da. I mean, they 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 got it took a beating in interviews um for press behind this album. You know, I think it was part of the course for a lot of bands at the time, but Kiss in particular, you know, uh, you know, were dealt quite a bit of that uh, in in the press and in interviews. That only wanted me to buy the album, or... right? I think Gene Simmons gave Rob <laughs> Halford the uh, the advice that it doesn't matter 
what they say about you as long as they print your picture and quote you and get your name right. So right. You know, um, well, I, as long as they're yeah. as long as they're talking about you. Well, yes. I, I love I love the quote. I think it was I think it was Rod Halford uh, interviews at the time. I think uh, he was saying you know like if we were supposed to put you know if we if we were going to put background messages on a record we would say you know buy more records. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right, exactly. Buy more of my records. Buy more of my records. Yeah. So, so this song is really about a dead relationship, right? And and yeah. Gene is feigning nonchalance that uh, that he is indifferent. Um, you know, loves turned to stone, which is kind of a reference back to Naked City. Hmm. All the victims, uh, you know, all the victims have turned to stone. No one is happy. They're all alone. Um, and you know, methinks. On some level, he doth protest too much. I don't need anyone at all. No, I'm not going to die. Um, and then, and then you have that beautiful counterpoint solo, like really melodic solo by Vinny, that's very poignant and and melancholy. And if you know, it, it's almost like the the musical equivalent of the saddest words in the English language. What might have been, right? Mm -hmm. So. This song to me is the counterpoint to I Still Love You, another song about a dead relationship where Paul says, makes me want to die, and Gene says, I'm not going to die. Not going to die. Yeah. Great point. I, lo I love the analysis. <laughs> I, think, I think you guys are missing your calling, and you should be charging 200 bucks an hour to listen to people's problems. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. David and I are both sons of English teachers, so we tend to look too heavily into everything. Yes. Oh, no. It's good to hear. I love it. Uh, this is a co-write by Michael Japp, who had co-written songs on Paul Stanley's 1978 solo album. Um, yeah. And Michael was also, I think I mentioned before, he was in a band uh, by the name of Marmalade. And they have a mm. great record uh, under the title of Our House is Rocking. It's a really good record. And Dave, I'd sent a clip of this record to you uh, earlier this week. With a drum solo. With a drum solo that sounds remarkably like Peter's drum solo on Alive One uh, yes. on 100,000 Years. Yeah, it's a great record. It's funny to hear that because both of those songs uh, came out around the same time. So, who influenced who in terms of you know, the drum solo? Of course. But nonetheless, I just want to mention uh, who was also uh, writing this song of Gene. Right. Um, one last thing about Saint and Sinner is the line there's no right and there's no wrong. I'm moving on. Um, there's a callback to that line in the Paul song, in the very next Paul song, Keep Me Coming. So we'll just bear that in mind till we get there. Uh, my, my take on Keep Me Coming is it's, it's the quintessential super 80s metal song. Um, it, but it also is sort of the beginning of where I can finally see that like Paul Stanley super whale, you know, like he's doing at the end. Mm. Uh, I don't feel I, I don't feel like anywhere else on any other songs I've heard that as strongly um, until this one. You know what I mean? And maybe because of the production or anything like that, but just his vocal delivery is really well. Yeah, he's definitely well he's definitely doing. Uh, they're doing a uh, like a, a good Zeppelin uh, imitation. Yeah, Robert. Or, or, yeah. For he, sure. When uh, uh, and he does it well. Um, I'll have to. Uh, Tell you one time we were doing demos. Oh, that's studio in Hollywood, and it's called Tone King. Mm. It's above the Hollywood Athletic Club. 
Oh, okay. That's uh, actually where Kiss, the original Kiss recorded for the very last time. They recorded a version of Detroit Rock City for the Detroit Rock City movie. Oh, oh so that's where the, the connection is. Yeah. Um, Paul was there. <clears throat> Anyways, uh, I think it was Bruce, myself, and, and Paul. And we just started jamming and we started getting into the Zeppelin stuff. And he was just wailing. It was really good. I wish I had a. I wish I had a copy of uh, of of what was going on there because he was, you know, he, like you said, he gets up into that range and he just nails it. It's amazing. For sure. Yeah. Well, it's definitely, and it feels like this is the album that I finally hear that. Yeah. You know, like the like the intro to um. Some song they did later. Uh, I can't even think of it. That starts with him like, whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, Heaven's on Fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's, this feels like it's, I mean, I know that he did this style in earlier songs, but it finally seems like it's becoming his sort of trademark way of vocal delivery, is particularly on this song. Yeah. And again, this, I mean, there's nothing, I mean, I like the song, you know, I mean, there's the, there's definitely that visceral 80s metal sound that just plugs, just jacks me into that matrix, like just immediately. And even though I know that this is kind of a throwaway song about his dick, I'm still, <laughs> I'm still you know what I mean? I feel like totally, you know, I mean, I know that it's, you know, what he's talking about some naive girl that he's mm. trying to bet, whatever, but I still, you know what I mean? Just the, the chorus and everything just is so catchy and all that kind of stuff that I'm, I, I love it. It's a great yeah. song too. Well, it fits, it fits the, you know, the, the Kiss fans and many rock fans at that time, you know, the, uh, yeah. that's, that's what all the guys are kind of, well, a lot of the guys are thinking about. Yeah. Unfortunately. Uh, and there's kind of an interesting, subtle double entendre there, obviously, because, you know, he's right, implor yeah. imploring her to keep him coming in the sense of, uh, Coming. of coming and also in the sense of egging him on towards uh towards the actual sexual act itself um mm -hmm. i hope there's I a never find a not so subtle <laughs> reference to female masturbation in the song right. uh, <laughs> yes got that as well yes um well, I'm glad I caught that, but I was like, "Now nah, I'll never bring that up because I'm not sure that's right. But, oh, yeah, it's okay, definitely okay. right. I know your plans, where you've been okay. keeping your hands. I know it's taking its toll. Yeah. yeah right. right. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the whole the idea of, of this is going to tell you what's right and what's wrong. Well, Gene has just told us there is no right, there is no wrong. <laughs> but within the context of this song, obviously what's right is giving into his will and sexual demands and what's wrong is any inclination she might have otherwise. Um. <laughs> ah, those men, they're yeah. horrible. <laughs> and by the way, the drums sound great on this because it's a slower tempo song. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And apparently the drums on this track were cut at a different studio that recorded media sound in New York. Oh, look at that. Yeah. Yeah, but definitely killer, killer drumming. But also, too, I, I love, to me, I hear that sort of, you know, I, I don't mean this in a negative way, but the Paul's always had this sort of spongy uh, rhythm guitar sound. I think you definitely hear that in this riff. And it's funny, I was watching some footage of them from the Unmasked tour where Paul, you know, sort of had like a, a, a lead guitar solo before uh, Black Diamond mm -hmm. on that tour. And he, and he plays basically the riff of Keep Me Coming 
this is back in 1980 um, on some in, in Australia. So it's, it's interesting to see that that was sort of a focal point for his guitar solo, and he later used that perhaps as a riff you know, for this song. But it, it's a killer riff, and definitely yeah. Zeppelin influence. And you know, again, it's kind of like the you know the take me for rock and roll over, but you know, here it is on Creatures of the Night. So yeah. it's not you know it's not out of their you know their uh, you know perspective to write songs like this at all. So keeping with my yin yang theory, right? This is mm -hmm. the song about the great seducer uh, conquering the young, innocent, you know, possibly virgin, virgin girl. Um, versus the flip side of the coin is the woman as sexual dominant that we'll get to with Gene's song "Killer." Oh yes, right. So this is next one is is an interesting song for a lot of reasons. This is. Uh, you know, I don't think you can quite call it a cover. I think it falls in that mm -hmm. liminal category that uh, God Gave Rock and Roll to You falls into, where uh, it's, it's a semi-cover of a BTO song um, that's mm -hmm. almost, you know, completely rewritten. So this is Rock and Roll Hell. Another, another good uh, riff song. I've never heard Gene uh, sing so high. Mm. He, he just, he's way up there. He, he normally doesn't go up there. <laughs> yeah. And, and once again, it's lower tempo. So Eric Carr's drumming is uh, just rocking and uh, it's right in, right in the pocket. And Dave will explain to us um, how this is ruining children's uh, minds throughout history with his analogy of the lyrics. Well, so so th there's a BTO song that Jim Valance wrote called Rock and Roll Hell, which ironically yeah. enough is about um, like a guy in a band who's stuck in the rock and roll hell of being on the road and he's, you know, strung out mm. and addicted to drugs and bored and tired and, you know, wants to get off tour versus this song, which is about a 16 year old kid who wants nothing more in his life than to leave home and try to pursue the dream of becoming a rock and roll star right so right um which is a reoccurring theme on this album too which is hell is knowing what you want and not being able to, not being in a position to be able to get it right right very good mm -hmm. hmm. yeah um the the lyrics again this is one of my favorite lyrical kiss songs this is again one of those songs that sort of speaks to me as being part of the KISS army, you know what I mean? Because I felt the same way as a kid, you know what I mean? Like nothing more than I wanted to be like a rock star. Um, uh, but the, the, um, the well, one thing that stands out is that galloping bass line, which just occurred to me out of nowhere as being very similar to sort of Iron Maiden bass lines. The dun, 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 that dun, are just dun, 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 yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's called a fake triplet, but you guys are more better musicians than I am. But um that yeah it's sort of an iron maiden kind of thing with the rock and roll hell uh the lyrics are just too you know just freaking great i just love the lyrics i'm not even going to go into the analysis of them because i mean the whole line about he might steal a guitar you know well that's a that's a funny line too right because i always wondered about that if the if the impetus for that line had anything to do with uh motley crew was just coming up and one of the stories that they like to tell in the music press was how Nikki walked into a music store and with an empty guitar case and filled out a music application. And then when they weren't looking, like, you know, <laughs> threw a guitar in it. Uh, yeah, nice. 
Yeah, you that's almost correct. wonder if that's like a reference or that was at least on people's minds and it worked its way into the lyrics that way. Yeah, I don't know. But it, uh, and then the and then the other thing that blew my mind about this is that Brian Adams wrote it and Jim Valance. Yeah. And so if you go to Jim Valance's website, he talks about this. And of course, he has to start with the disclaimer like, well, I was never a big Kiss fan. But of course, you know, I deemed, you know, I lowered myself to write with the guys and whatever. Um, but but what's. Right. Well, he says he doesn't. He doesn't remember it the same way that Gene remembers the way the the song was written. Yeah, is also. And th there's an interesting thing too, where he recalls a phone call from Gene, where Gene said, "I think the song needs a third verse," and uh, and they were like, "Oh, okay." And he goes, "And I'm gonna write it." And they saw this at the time as as Gene just saying, "Like, I want writing credit, so I'm gonna put." my input into it but then they mm. they go on to say that he actually you know took a very small percentage of the song that was consummate with his contribution to it and actually the third verse works really well it seems integral to the song it doesn't seem like it was an afterthought it seems like i don't think that both possibilities are mutually exclusive is what i'm trying to say i think the song mm. did need a third verse that he had in mind and he wanted writing credit for contributing it. Mm. Mm. Did you say that Brian Adams was one of the writers on this? Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, I didn't know that. That's so weird. I almost played with Brian Adams. Oh, really? Wow. Uh, yeah, when I was with uh, Donnie. Ah. Uh, he, came, he came into town and I saw him. He was awesome. I was in love with him. I met uh, Bob Clearmountain, too. Yeah, uh, who's one of my favorite mixers, and he's so quiet. And you're thinking, how the hell does this guy get such a great sound when he's so quiet? But anyways, he does. I flew to his house and auditioned, and they were going to. Uh, I, um, they, they wanted a drummer to leave in like two days to go on tour, and and I was right in the middle of. We were ready to come to I think Los Angeles with Donnie and do a record company show and a little tour and. And ended up not doing it, ah, uh, which which is probably for the better. I'd probably be divorced. I wouldn't have kids. <laughs> I'd be singing rock and roll hell. Uh, because that's, <laughs> that, that's where I would be on the road. You know, he just never, never ended. He never just, he just toured. It was constant touring. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Great voice. And a great songwriter too. I mean, that Reckless album, from, yeah, you know, fr fr front to back is just amazing. I mean, yeah. man, course, yeah, the songwriting structures are great. Uh, but to yeah. that point too, John, you were mentioning the bass sound. Um, the bass sound in this song is very similar to the bass sound in the Brian Adams track. Somebody, you got that sort of. Mm. Yeah, and uh, David, you had a bootleg of them playing it live at one point, and there's a little guitar part that's actually added to it. That's like a near, 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 near. You know what I mean? That's on top of the uh, that little bass part in the bootleg from the concert or whatever they added something uh, to it. It seemed like. Yeah, it's interesting. They they pl they rarely played this song live, much like yeah. "Keep Me Coming." Um, I think they tried them out maybe once on this tour and dropped them immediately. Yeah, Keep Me Coming, they played on two dates, and Rock and Roll Hell, they played on maybe two or three dates. You know? Okay. Hey, you guys, you know you know everything about everything. Who mixed Hot in the Shade? I looked, was Pat, it was Pat's studio, 
and he recorded the tracks, but I don't know if he continued uh, finishing the record. Yeah, mixed by Dave Whitman, uh, uh, produced okay. by, or recorded by Pat Regan. Pat Regan, yeah, recorded by Pat Regan and mixed by Dave Whitman. Okay. Okay, so he didn't mix it. Okay, it's a good mix. That's why I asked. No, but Dave Whitman, yeah, but Dave was involved in this record too, though, right? Mm. In, in Creatures. Yeah, I was just going to say that it's funny because around the, around the same time there was the the Foreigner track, um, Jukebox Hero, you know, which kind of yeah. has you know a similar theme. Sure. It absolutely uh, does. Equally yeah. good song. Yeah, great song. Yeah, and but it's much darker. It's much darker than that. That's that's one of the it reasons is. I really like it. It's a great song, and again, it's one of those ones that speaks to me as a human being, um, mm -hmm. even though in no way, shape, or form, you know. Uh, was I really gonna, but yeah, I mean, I wanted to be a rock, you know, that's what I wanted so badly was to, you know, be a rock star, especially when I discovered this album. So, yeah. And I think, I think the third verse is really a pivotal, you know, perhaps the best part of the song, because I mean, it, it deals with things that rock songs don't usually deal with in terms of, you know, the concept, the whole, the line, his turn may never come, right? You don't hear that in Jukebox Hero. Yeah, it's a guarantee this guy's going to be no. a rock star because he believes and he wants <laughs> right. it, and, you know. Uh, but Gene's saying, yeah, it might happen, it might not happen. Um, you know, he can't see what he's become. Okay, so, I mean, mm -hmm. he's sacrificing part of himself. Maybe he's not a good human being or the best human being that he potentially could be because of what he's doing to achieve, trying to achieve his dream. Um, mm -hmm. Once again, we return to the whole Kiss concept. He seems to think it's his destiny. Destiny is something that Kiss goes back to again and again on multiple albums as a philosophical concept. And here Gene is even almost questioning whether or not that's true or whether it's just in his head, whether he's deluding himself to think that his stardom dream is even realistic or a possibility. Yeah. Uh, Dave, I love it. I love listening to this. Oh, great, man. Way better, way, way better than talking about drum sounds. <laughs> well, we want to talk about that too. Yes. Ah, that's nothing compared to this. This is, this is real life. <laughs> I just want to go back to Kevin's point about uh, Gene's vocals on this song and also to, to Dave's comments on uh, Paul's vocals on Keep Me Coming. I know that we spoke on about The Elder, where Paul was sort of reaching and looking for a different vocal style. I think, you know, we look at this record and then the record that followed Lick It Up, I and mean, you can tell they, they really just sort of went in a different direction. And, you know, just, their vocals just it went, you know, ballistic in terms of, you know, their abilities and, and their range. Um, you know, both Gene and Paul, and I think these are both great examples of Keep Me Coming and Rock and Roll Hell. Of, you know, where they were going because, you know, they obviously utilized a lot of these same approaches to their vocals on, on Lick It Up and, and albums that followed. Yeah, there's a lot of subtle things that Gene does with his voice in rock and roll hell too. Where Yeah, he, he gets real gravelly with it, gets real, and yeah. I mean, and it's not a technical term. But yeah, I mean, but you can tell he's got a lot, lot of control of what he's singing and how he's right, singing. Right, a lot of dynamics going on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. A favorite, always the favorite. Mind blown that it's written by Brian Adams. <laughs> All right, so what's next? Danger. Danger. Apparently, they recorded this song in a different key, and then they decide. Paul decided he didn't like the key in terms of his voice. From what I read, was they supposedly I don't know if it's VSO or whatever it is. They supposedly sped the track up, they to make it, it oh. fit the key that they wanted it to be in. Which is oh really? Okay. Yeah. 
Because well, he's, at, he's, he's, he's nailing it, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's that, that, that soaring high vocal stuff that he does. I mean, that's, he's just nailing it on this song. And if you compare this album to most other Kiss albums, you know, they're usually tuned down a half step, whereas this album, with the exception of uh, War Machine, I think is in 440. Mm. Hmm. So, like, and this song is, is would technically, you know, what you hear on the record is would be considered 440. So perhaps they recorded a half step down and, and decided to boost it up, you know, a mm. half step. I don't know. But, but either way, I mean. Seems like turning, you know, tuning down a half would give you a darker, you know, heavier sound. I'm surprised that yeah. they were at 440. Uh, and we got our we got our normal da, ba, 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 into the chorus, you know, that, that part yeah. we talked about earlier. Hey, it worked. So they kept using it. It was, it was, a, it, was a, it was a good tool for them. Absolutely. It's a cool turnaround. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's, it's their style. Yeah. And Eric Carr really, uh, it plays great on this track. It's this is one of my favorite tracks for sure. Uh band wise. Yeah. Um uh was this written by uh, an outside writer too? Yeah, so this was co-written with Adam Mitchell again. Mm, okay. So a song about embracing the inherent risk in life. I mean, this is kind of the the, the Paul Stanley version of of rock and roll hell. In, in in rock and roll hell, the kid is waiting for the chance to pursue his dreams, and in danger, uh, the the man is out there on his own, risking everything to uh, achieve what he wants out of life. Well said. Yes. If I, that mine is, if I can't have it, I just steal it. That's that what is what sums up the whole song for me. Is that line? Yeah, no safety this side of the grave. Yeah, and for me, I, I you know I love you know we we've spoken before about you know different chord changes that they use. I think that the chord changes in, in the pre-chorus are, are so great. You know they're so dramatic, and it just launches again into you know this amazing you know, chorus and, and vocal by Paul. I mean, that's, those guys, again, they just don't get enough credit for, you know, their, their songwriting abilities and, you know, their execution you know, as, as musicians on these types of tracks. Yeah, there's a really interesting um, vocal counterpart, like, uh, for the final line of the song where Paul says, uh, give me fires that endlessly burn, I've passed the point of return. And there's like a really high part that uh, is... It almost sounds like it's like a country influence, like because I've heard that type of thing more on country music than than mm. on rock and roll. You know what I'm talking about? Where it sounds like female singers going, oh. Yeah, I tried I tried to listen to headphones, and it just sounds to me like it might be like a keyboard part or a synth part or something. But uh, it's definitely an enhancement to that line. It's interesting they use it only on that line too, but you know, it yeah. works. Yeah, yeah. You know, these guys are. Uh, they're such good craftsmen yeah. in, uh, in, in music. And I think they probably used the Beatles as a model, perhaps, whereas... Oh, totally. They, they didn't, you know, covet their spot and let no one, and no, not let anyone else, you know, play a part. Like, you can't play bass, you can't play drums. You know, they just did it. If it worked, it worked. It's like, yeah, great, let's move on. And I mm -hmm. think they're... I think they're... I was thinking about this when Gene not playing on tracks and, you know, if he, you know, if he thinks he's better off on the phone, making a multi-million dollar deal 
doing something for the band and and you know someone else plays bass so be it you know but 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 the fact is they're they're working with them they're just geniuses at crafting uh three four minute songs they're 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 experts at it yeah i think you hit on a really important point there kevin i mean i think that they also like to take apart songs that other people have written and reassemble them and see if they can make them stronger almost like like a like a, a clocksmith would approach mm -hmm. you know a song yeah yeah they're um you know, uh, well, you know, it's it's just like, uh, it, look, it's it's you know, you could get all artsy about this, and uh, but the fact of the matter is, you're playing a song for three or four minutes, and you got to take people along with you, so they know that, and and any artist that I would have to say, most artists that want to be successful, keep that in mind. Some of them luck out, and regardless of their uh, 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 wanting to please an audience, they become successful, but, but most people do. And, uh, but, but it's just like TV shows and movies and you have X amount of time and you have to, you know, you got to do all the, the proper arcs so people pay attention. You got to put the carrot in front of their face. So they stay interested. And, and at the end, you have to go, yeah, that was a great fucking movie. That was a great show. They're saying that was a great song. They're, they're crafting this stuff. And it takes, it takes, um, that is overlooked, I think, because you don't know what shape these songs were in to begin with. But they figure it out and they know in the end what works. And they're, they're really, really, really good at it. Absolutely. So now we come to flip the record over and perhaps the most important pivotal song on the entire album. I love it loud. Wow. You guys are talking records. Yeah. We remember records. Yeah. Uh, What's a record? You know, this reminds me of an old, a classic Kiss song uh, to me. Right. And be, besides the massive drone sound, and it's fucking massive. I mean, you could hear, uh, to me, I may be wrong, but you could hear more than just a single room. It sounds like they're putting uh, speakers in another room. and It has a different tone <clears throat> regarding the ambience on the, on the drums. But, uh, uh, I, I, mean, I could, I mean, I could just see Gene singing this. I mean, he, it's just all him. You know, it, it's his life. <laughs> I love it loud. This, and, and he should be, he should be, and he is happy that he did it. And he's been doing this his whole life. How can you, how can you complain about that? You know, in, there's an interview with Gene where he talks about uh, when the first Black Sabbath record came out, he saw an ad for it where the only thing the ad said was louder than Led Zeppelin. It didn't say <laughs> better than, loud, than Led Zeppelin or anything like that. <laughs> Um, and I think that the, the impact of that has always stayed with him and plays a factor into, into the ethos of this song because it's really, it's really a song about 
being true to yourself and and the and yeah. the, the implicit part of the song is that we betrayed ourselves and we know that and therefore we betrayed you because we can't be true to you if we were not true to ourselves and we have bowed mm -hmm. to commercial forces that have uh caused us to produce less than what we are capable of and that this signifies an end to that it's like it, this song is almost a covenant between the the band and the fans that there will be no more compromise right yeah right. Mm -hmm. and again it speaks to the whole kiss army you know no more treated like aliens you know that kind of song the message that he's sending out is saying we're all one we're all we all love it loud um you know, and we're and and because of that, we're guilty until we're proven innocent. You know, because just by associating together, we're showing who we are. Um, you know, and that kind of stuff. And but that's all right because you know, I love it loud. So is this a Gene? Was this a Gene written song? Yes, Gene Vinny. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, Vinny hey. Vincent something. Gene added the a a a a yeah. Of course. And yeah. On a weird, yeah, exactly. On a weird side note, Dave, I think this is the first song we learned to play as a band together. It did. It was, and I, I think we played it so much and so often that for weeks afterwards, every song I heard sounded like this song. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we played, yeah. It's funny. It's and it's. Um, I can't. You know, there's that album that the Little Wretches recorded. There's parts that I can't remember what the bass parts are but I can still play. I love it loud. Oh yeah. <laughs> Gene stole a, a page from the who on this one too. That whole, the thing of playing the B chord and then turning it into a B seven chord by dropping down to the A, but still holding the rest of the power chord. That's mm -hmm. straight from mm -hmm. uh, my generation. Yeah. Yep. 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 Feel from the best, right? Yeah. On that subject too, I mean, funny, if you listen to, uh, you know, the 80s song uh, by the waitresses, you know, I know what boys like. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Yeah. I never put that together, but I love that song too. So. Uh -huh. <laughs> when, when, when did that come out? I want to say it was either 79 or 80. I could, I could be wrong. I think it was, yeah, yeah. this album was yeah. 82. Yeah. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, he's right. <laughs> <laughs> one thing i have to say about this song it always pissed me off apparently at some point paul said to gene in some bitchy offhanded comment you know oh this song kind of drags when we play it live we should fix that and the way mm. that they came up with to fix it is to drop two of the lines from one of the verses which saves the song mm. all of about maybe seven seconds maximum and it always hmm. sounds weirdly incomplete to me because it you know they truncate one of the verses at random when they play it sure. live and it's just like really do we really have to give in to paul's weirdness about that i mean well funny because it was it was, it was on the fourth date of, the, of, the, of that tour so they made it four dates into the tour and in charleston west virginia they, they decided okay that's it we're not doing that that verse anymore so <laughs> Wow! Really? Huh? You know what? I'm surprised. I'm surprised that you would think of any song that would play well live. This is yeah. this would be the one. Yeah. Whatever, yeah. whatever tempo, however long it was, it seems like this song should just hammer live. But hey, whatever. Yeah. 
Yeah, it does. I mean, I you know. Um, so so interestingly, on, on this song too, I mean, you have the counterpoint, no more alibis that Gene says. The most interesting verse, I think, is, is the final one where uh, he says, headline, jungle is the only rule, front page, roar of the nation, cool. You know, in a lot of ways, this album is about America and the, the whole idea that, you know, uh, that blue jeans and rock and roll and comic books are the the outcry of 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 the people right and that the reason why they're important is because they naturally rise to the top um because mm. there, there are no rules the the government is not supporting popular culture in the way that it might in a, in another country and you know what what you need to do is embrace the chaos and and make it your own turn it up this is my attitude i love it loud once, yeah. again, once again, once again, Dave. <laughs> well, and two, you know, think about this, guys. I mean, you know, the, the, the last, uh, the album previous, you know, the last full album previous to this one was The Elder. You know, they took a beating over that record. And primarily that was Gene's, you know, concept, you know, for music from The Elder. And then you got this, you know, I think it's like the second line in the verse. He's like, he's saying, guilty until proven in you know, whiplash, heavy metal accent. Is that sort of looking back on, you know, what they did previously? And you, you, you have to wonder. Yeah, and mm. the, and the line I want to be president. Um, yeah, which I was just thinking about mm -hmm. today. Um, that line, coupled with some of the lines in War Machine, um, are are really interesting. Right, kill your leaders, and I will replace yes. them. <laughs> yeah, um, that's great. Yeah, okay, all right. But we'll we'll get we'll get there. <laughs> and I just have one other fun story about this song. When, when this record came out, um, I had friends. You know, we're all from obviously uh, we're all familiar with Western Pennsylvania. Uh, there's mm -hmm. a uh, sort of a science center known as Beale Planetarium, and they had this huge planetarium that must have had I don't know. I think there were like 38 speakers built into this sort of you know dome that would show you know projections of you know light shows and da da da. I think back in those days, they would do like, you know, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon and show a bunch of lasers. Laser Yeah, Floyd. right? So what my friends would do is they would, I'd bring down a cassette of this song. We would crank it up you know, when, when the place wasn't open and just blast this song in Beale Planetarium. It was amazing to hear. Wow. Oh, that's that great. Of, that's yeah. really cool. Yeah, and those friends are still working there. They work at the, now at the Carnegie Science Center um, near Heinz Field. So yeah, I'm still friends with those guys and great memories of this song and being able to crank it up, you know, in an Dude. uncommon venue. The guys that were working at the pizza place that I ate pizza at when I was in third grade are still working there. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I know. <laughs> and that's why the pizza is so good there. That's why pizza out here sucks. It's you know, delicious. Sucks. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> we need to move some of those people out here. Yeah. Uh, don't get me started, guys. Don't get me started. You know. Yeah, pizza is terrible in LA. Well, no, it's not. I've had a decent uh, pizza here and there. Yeah, but you have to pay um, 30 bucks for it, whereas you pay 15 bucks for it in Pittsburgh. So, you know, come on. True. Anyway, I digress. Moving on from I Still Love You. My only notes that I put next to it is a heart-wrenching ballad. Like, it's definitely got a, a lot of feeling behind it. I mean, I don't, I know that I've heard them do it live. Isn't it? Is it on a live three or something? Like, I seem to remember that it was... But nothing, again, it didn't really totally stand out for me. Yeah, I mean, um, it's a vocal showcase for Paul, obviously. And, right. and, you know, he does, 
live he does that opera trick. I don't even know what it's called, where you can basically hold a note for almost forever. Um, and uh, mm -hmm. interesting, Eric Carr actually plays bass on this one. No, no kidding. Um, I, yeah, I think Paul uh, just nails this, but this is the one, one of the songs that I thought the guitar was really lacking. Mm. It's very stark and, and uh, sterile and sorry, uh, Paul, but, uh, and I, I wanted more, you know, just grace notes or anything in between chords. And it's basically just kind of, He's just power cording it and, uh, you know, looking for a little chicka chicky in between some noise, a fill down, anything. But uh, that's okay. Now that we know the situation with the guitar, well, that's okay. I was blaming Vinny for this, but it, that wasn't the case. Yeah, which in this case, Vinny is a, a co-writer in the song, but I, 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 I guess we could assume that he played some rhythm guitar on it. But I agree, Kevin, it's almost like... It's a very almost like a, a, a Fender or a Strat-like sound on the rhythm tracks, you know, for the verse, which sounds kind of thin yeah. compared to the rest of the record. Yeah. And then it, it fills a little in the pre-chorus and the chorus, but yeah, I agree. It's, you know, it, it's, it, it's a little sterile compared to you know, the way they oh, perform it live later. Big time. It sounds like uh, a, well, we're saying it sounds like, even though we know it's not, uh, like a beginner guitar player you know, putting the track down, you know, there's just not a lot of emotion, not a lot of feel, not a lot of ad-libs, nothing. It's just, you know, fucking chords and like he's reading sheet music. Uh, and good thing Paul, Paul is uh, wailing, but nonetheless, I mean, I, I even hear Gene kind of trying to add a little movement in there because it's, it's plotting. Uh, but, you know. Uh, yes, that's the word, plotting. Yeah. Thank you, yes. <laughs> But, okay, but Paul, I'm bad. that's what I was looking for. Paul just lays it out, man. But cool thing about the verse, though, those parts. Uh, I know that Paul had mentioned that he had seen Humble Pie um, at the Fillmore in New York. And if you listen to uh, Humble Pie's cover of uh, Walk on Gilded Splinters, which I, I believe is a Dr. John tune, that riff and that verse is you know, carbon copy of, of the way of the way that they're playing that that part in, uh, you know, the Dr. John song, the Humble Pie played. So it's interesting to know that it's basically the same rhythm part on both songs. Hey, speaking of Humble Pie, um, I saw Marriott do a solo show. He was singing, obviously, but he was playing guitar and it was a blues show. Okay. And he fucking laid it out, man. He yeah. was playing blues like you've never heard. And who uh, knew? Yeah. And his uh, voice alone is amazing. Well, yeah. Well, amazing. we knew what we knew he could do with the vocal, but he was playing authentic blues. Uh, you know, like, you know, name a great modern blues player. He was doing that as well as putting the Marriott voice on top. It was quite something. Not to, not to derail this conversation about... Wow. the rest of the song but yeah uh if, if you could maybe google it later uh, it, it was amazing yeah i sent it to someone because i was astounded he could play blues guitar like that never wow. heard him yeah okay anyways uh and speaking of blues guitar players um the guitar player doing the solos on this record is robin ford 
um, ah. which to me, I always thought, thought, you know, thought that some of these, you know, solo lists remind me of something, you know, Sean would have done, you know, but, you know, either way, all those guys are, are great players, but, um, uh, you know, I think to me, other than Paul's vocals, the thing that stands out to me most is, you know, Robin's playing on the solos on this song more so than yeah. some of the rhythm parts. I yeah. can see that for sure. Um, my only other comment about the song is, you know, the, the, the ultimate line, I see now I see the price of losing you will be my hell to pay each and every day. Again, back to rock and roll hell. Hell is knowing what you want and not being hmm. in a position to get it. Hmm. We're seeing the, the thing, reoccurring thing. <laughs> yes. So now kind of a lost classic, I think. This was actually a, the second single off the record, even though it didn't end up doing anything. Uh, Killer. Uh, I'd say it got a deep purple feel to me. Okay. That, that, uh, the, the riff, the little good lead part in the chorus, I love. Yeah. The chorus um, has that great demented kind of feel that, that, yeah. that kind of goes with the lyric mm. about her being, you know, possibly crazy, psychopathic, murderous. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I really like it. It's a good straight ahead rocker too. There's nothing wrong with it. You know what I mean? It doesn't, it doesn't, it does what it says on the tin. You know what I mean? It's just a straight ahead rock song. It's not trying to impress you too much. I don't know. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Well, now this is the flip side of the coin to keep me coming though, right? Because now she, the woman is the one with the power, the dangerous seducer. You are the victim. Um, you know, she's the succubus who takes many other lo lovers and you are simply lucky if you can be one of them and escape with your life and soul intact i just like that it rocks <laughs> yeah you, and it, it doesn't to me it has a deep purple vibe to it i mean it almost seems like it's got like a deep purple like written as like a homage to deep purple or whatever yeah john i totally yeah. agree because it's it's got that great great uh, bass counterpoint where it's doing the thing on bass but then the guitar you know blackmore do something we're just kind of playing you know you know the fifth and you know, right. and, and the octave and letting the bass kind of carry mm -hmm. the song through. I definitely agree. I didn't think of it yep. that way, but I, I do now. Thank you. Yeah. No, that's, hey, that's what I'm here for. That's what I'm here. <laughs> Classic Gene vocal. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Real gravelly voice, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. There's so many great lines in here. Uh, Nerves of steel, her next meal is served in front of me. You know, her. she's already <laughs> like flirting with some guy in front of the guy that she just had sex with and uh you know the whole thing about right. she'll make you walk through fire is almost a callback to give me fires that endlessly burn mm -hmm. uh i've passed the point of return mm -hmm. i'm the, the the line run for your life is you know calls back to danger again i'm gonna run for my life i mean it's almost it's almost a thematic concept album if you look at all of the the, the commonalities between the gene and paul songs that way you're right absolutely right wow yeah, I guess you're really right about that. Huh. And I think the guitar solo on this song is Vinnie Vincent, correct? Yes. It's, it's, it sounds like his licks, yeah. Um, I read something where I think the engineer said that they added some sort of what they, got, what they thought was a cool um, backwards piano sound at the end of the song, but I wasn't able to hear that. Do you guys hear that? No, but no, I, didn't no. read, I didn't read that, so I'll listen for it for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's like the, sort of like a weird sort of reverb effect after the last chord that's played in the song. Maybe that's what they're referring to. And it, it does sound like something like maybe like they slowed down the tape or did something. But, you know, if that's a backwards piano, it doesn't sound like a you know, piano to me. So War Machine, um, 
the final song on the album. I think one of the all-time great classic Kiss songs, because I have a theory, right, that all all Kiss songs have to have a, a, a certain dichotomy about them to be classics, right? Rock and roll all night on one hand is about, yeah, you, everybody wants to rock and roll all day and, and party every night, but really it's about a guy that wants to get with this party girl and she wants to go out and party and take a spin in the car and do everything but get with this guy. So there's that underlying tension. Detroit Rock City is a celebration of the city of, of Detroit being a rock and roll town, but it's also a tragedy about a kid getting in a drunk driving accident and getting killed on the way to a KISS concert. And right. I, think, I think War Machine um, works on multiple, multiple levels. Um, the, the origins of this song are interesting because basically, again, Brian Adams and, and uh, what's his Mallons. name? Jim Mallons. Mallons. Yeah. Uh, they have uh, they have a different memory <laughs> of the origins of the song than Gene does. Gene says that he wrote the main riff on like a Casio keyboard, and then these guys came along and, and fleshed out the verses. They say that they had the basic song, they had the main riff, and then Gene asked them for a different part for the verses, which they then went ahead and wrote. So uh, who knows wherein the truth lies there? Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. It was a long time ago too, and things get blurry. Yeah. This song sounds. This song sounds like it was was off the Revenge album. Yeah. Even sonically, even the triplets he's doing sounds like Eric doing the triplets. Oh, the other Eric, Jesus, uh, wow. Eric Singer doing the triplets on something on Revenge. Uh, yeah. Even the mix sounds somewhat different. Sounds like Revenge to me. Very strange, but a great song. Uh, and of course, we have all the dark side that Dave's going to tell us about the uh, <laughs> gloom and doom. And, you know, he, he really hated his mother. And he, <laughs> actually, actually, I just thought a funny thing I said that because I just saw a video of, of uh, Gene. It was he was presenting something. It was just it was a, it was like an army thing or something. And he was he uh, broke down and he was crying because he was talking about his mother and how uh, when he came to the United States, you know, he was watching TV with his, his mom and he was eight or something and he didn't understand English. And she's, you know, and she's telling him how, you know, it was running from the Nazis and how this, this land is uh, really the place to be the U S you know, I know he's very, very pro U S and, and he should be, uh, but it was interesting because, uh, he, yeah, he he's, I know he's really into uh, the armed forces and and the services and and just being a, a a good citizen of the United States, uh, as he should be because you know he he went after the pot of gold and he got it and he realized that this is the 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 country where you could really do it. Yes. So it was interesting mm -hmm. to, see, to see Gene uh, break down, but I guess his mother had died not too long ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I think one of the levels that War Machine works on is this, this is uh, now Gene is embracing the, he is the danger, right? He is the one who knocks uh, for those who mix better call Saul in the, in the sense that, uh, you know, 
Eisenhower in 1961 gave his farewell speech where he warned America about the dangers inherent in the military industrial complex, that uh, the incentives were in place for America to basically force itself to go broke by always being on a permanent war footing mm. and in a state mm -hmm. of perpetual conflict and uh, to, to basically destroy themselves through massive military spending. So the warning of a giant unstoppable war machine on one hand is, you know, when the song was written, Reagan put that on steroids right? Because we mm -hmm. were in the middle of the arms race with the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also a song about the danger of power not being in your, in your hands and the danger of fascism. Because, you know, he talks about tearing down the voice of reason, let the arrows fly, your freedom's just a state of mind. And, you know, Armageddon's mm -hmm. just a matter of time. At the time, you know, there was a lot of fear that mutually assured destruction um, was a, perhaps an inevitability between the Cold War, between the U.S. and uh, Russia, right? That mm -hmm. there were flocks of geese that were taking our systems down to DETCON 2, and if we hit DETCON 1, the world might be destroyed. So, you know, I think the song is a reflection of that. Um, but it's also a personification of of the machine of KISS itself. That whole idea of you think we're done, you know, you think we've had it. Mm. We are mm. made of sterner stuff than that. We are an unstoppable machine and we are back. Very, very mm. interesting. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, and you take the... Um, Strike down the ones who leads me. I want to replace them. Or yeah, something strike like down that. the one who like, leads me. I'm going to take his place. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely almost saying that you know we are in, we we have controlled our destiny and made our destiny happen. Right. And it's no. funny that those are the lyrics the PMRC never glommed mm -hmm. onto when you know they're almost literally calling for violent revolution. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, but overall, it's a, it's such a killer track. And again, this is the only track on on the the album that is uh, tuned a half step down. Which again, Kevin might be you know why it sounds similar to stuff on Revenge because that album was right for the most part a half step down. But yeah, it's just I mean, this is one of those records where yes, you know we mentioned that you know the drums are a little a bit too much of a room sound. But if you blast this thing in your car, it there's still that that classic space in between the chords and you know and the vocals and mm -hmm. you know it, it's it's still there's still a crispness to it in a lot of ways too but man like this song in particular it's a monster of a track yeah it is you know, it's funny i listened to, to originally i listened to on my uh well the audio technical phones they're like sony phones uh yeah. high-end phones i use them for mixing and then uh just as of late i put in my apple earbuds and the record almost sounded better on the Apple earbuds as wow. far as translation goes. Yeah, probably because I wasn't here some of the extreme low end. But mm -hmm. it, no, it, it, <laughs> it, it, it's very, very well mixed. And, you know, if it plays on all these systems uh, equally well, it's, it's properly mixed. Interesting too when they they re-released the record in '85 uh, with a different uh, album cover and they reverse they moved some of the track order around. 
Um, but apparently they, they remixed uh, Creatures of the Night, the song, and uh, I Live It Loud and War Machine for that release. So um, if, you, you know, if you're you know, that much of a fan and you listen to both those uh, versions of the record, that's the reason why those three songs in the 85 re-release sound different. Yeah. Oh, if, interesting. If you listen yeah. to I Love It Loud 2 on Smashes, Thrashes, and Hits, it sounds almost neutered. They took so much bottom end out. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and I think on the Creatures remix, it's almost like there's more echo on, on the lead vocals. It sounds, it's, it sounds, I don't know, a little more tame in a way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the vocals on Worms do sound a little bit odd. It sounds like he's underwater for a little bit of it. It doesn't really detract from me, for mm -hmm. me, mm -hmm. but the vocals definitely have some sort of effect on him. It's a little weird. But again, I, don't, I didn't really, it didn't really bother me that much. I mean, sure. I still love the song. Yeah. And overall, I mean, it's, it's really a great, if you want to call it a comeback record for the band, because, you know, like I said, they took a beating with The Elder, you know, and, and it's funny because, you know, The Elder was Eric Carr's first, you know, recording with the band, and it's been said that, you know, I think he might have mentioned, you know, that this isn't at all what I expected it to be when they were recording The Elder, <laughs> you know, but then this is really the album that, you know, that he probably should have, you know, been, uh, it, this album should have been his debut in terms, you know, in terms mm. of his introduction to the musical world. Mm -hmm. Um, for sure he got he got thrown the curveball yeah but yeah i guess he yeah. dealt with it well he played the game and you know he mm -hmm. stayed focused and, and good for him that's not an easy thing to do mm -hmm. yeah he rolled with the punches yeah what was he gonna what was what was he gonna say i don't want to be in the band <laughs> <laughs> hey right hey, yeah. hey fellas this is not what i had in mind here yeah <laughs> there, there's a door eric so this album did better than The Elder. Um, it's funny because I remember reading at the time that it went gold, although now Wikipedia tells me that it didn't actually go gold until, you know, 1994. So you wonder how much of that was record company hype. Um, it, did, yeah. it did turn their career around to a certain extent, although the tour that subsequently followed was uh, not well attended. Mm. No, I mean that 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 tour tanked. No, but it, that, John, they didn't. I remember I I remember wanting to see Kiss. I mean, obviously Dave and I saw uh, Dynasty tour, and I remember wanting for years to see them again. And again, we didn't see them until '84 um, on the Lick It Up tour. Uh, but I, I yeah, that's I, I did some research. I didn't think they had any Pittsburgh dates booked because they played Cleveland and Detroit, and you know they did have a Pittsburgh anyhow. date booked. I they were they you. were in our area. Okay, oh, they did. Oh. I can I can tell you how I know that because if you were a young intrepid Kiss fan in Pittsburgh at the time and you called the De Caesar Angler Hotline, who was the concert promoter, um, oh, yeah. you would get a message that that gave a specific date for the Creatures tour, and then it would say that date is tentative. <laughs> ah, there you go. And then they didn't do it because it was like. Not enough tickets sold. Was that the deal? Yeah, or? I think they like throughout the tour they were playing you know, largely half-empty arenas. I mean, they you mm -hmm. know I think they did well in certain markets. Like they always did well in Detroit. They could always sell out an arena there. They probably did mm -hmm. all right in Cleveland. But um, you know, on the whole, this was them turning the ship around and and things were were looking up. But you know, when they asked Gene why Lick It Up doesn't sound like Creatures. His response was, "Well, we tried that, and it didn't work." Mm. Mm. Uh, uh, 
Yeah, Riches of the Night is one of my favorite Kiss albums. Um, you know, and it's definitely one that really. Uh, it's, I think it's one I actually bought with my own money. Um, I'll be probably in a cutout bin somewhere in Oakland in a used record store or something like that. Um, but uh, it definitely is one of my favorite albums. And it's it, it follows with Lick It Up and then what came after Lick It Up? Amplized? Or, yeah. Um, yeah, so those three albums are ones that like, that's when I was like a, a full-fledged thinking Kiss fan teenager. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That really... Because up until then, I didn't know there was really no discussion of what music I love. You know, it, it, we were in high school. That's when your, <coughs> excuse me, that's when your musical taste became, or middle school to high school, that's when your musical taste became your badge of honor. You know what I mean? Or right. not your badge of honor, but your identity amongst other people. So that was truly 80, what is this, 82, 83? 82, 82 yeah. Um, yeah, so that's when I'm I'm actually asserting myself to be a metalhead. You know what I mean? So yeah. I'm buying albums, I'm buying Twisted Sister albums, you know, that kind of stuff. That's the uh, the time of the life where where this stuff is burned in to your yes. to your brain. Right. It's like the saying about comic books. What is the golden age of comic books when you're 12 to 14 years old? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So you're right. And, and this is this is my golden age of kiss, even though I know that the, and it wasn't until later that I realized there was this whole back catalog. But this is where this is my golden age of kiss. This is where I'm going to see the shows. This is where you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm listening to the albums because I have it on my turntable, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, well, what's interesting is this is a fan favorite album now. And it's a band favorite album, yeah. you know, M- practically every album that they did after this they were like well this is kind of like creatures meets this or you know there's Mm -hmm. lots of albums they did where they Mm -hmm. said it's kind of be like creatures meets destroyer and you know as much as it was like a back to roots album for them they weren't rewriting rock and roll all night or detroit rock city you know they this album was heavy in a totally different way and it wasn't overly derivative of the new uh, wave of heavy bands that were out either. Mm-hmm. No, li- they, and I know that a lot of these lyrics were written by other people, but it's probably the most lyrically mature album of theirs, besides maybe The Elder. Yeah, mm-hmm. at least um, up until this point, for sure. Yeah, definitely up until this point, this is the first album where I'm like, yeah, that song's about me, you know? Um, whereas listening to Rock and Roll All Night, I'm like, yeah, that's a great, great, you know, great rock and tune, but Strangely enough, I don't rock and roll all night and party every day. <laughs> they tell me to, and you know what I mean? And you know, But Creatures of the Night, I'm like, yeah, that's right. I am living in a whisper. I am going to win, you know, and, um, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and rock and roll, hell, you know, I want to be a rock star. War Machine, yeah, I'm going to get rid of the people that are in front of me and I'm going to take over. You know, these are lyrical songs that are, you know. Teenage male power fantasies. Yes. Yes, exactly. Right. Which you, which I'm still living in. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but, but obviously, too, the guys in the band, you know, felt strongly about the, the album to the point where, you know, on any given night early on in the tour, they were playing as many as six of the nine songs that are on this album, you know, in their live performances for the for that tour. So. Wow. Um, wow. Which is, you know, pretty, I mean, you, you, you let's say, you know, you, you see the Eagles on. You know, the Hell Freezes Over tour, and they introduced maybe like two new songs, and that's it. Here, here's Kiss. Okay, here's our new record, and we're coming back, and we're gonna play six new songs for you. Okay, <laughs> that takes mm-hmm. a lot of nerve. You know, it takes yeah. a lot. You know, 
a lot of confidence. And again, my hat's off to those guys for, for doing that. Absolutely. So any final thoughts about Creatures of the Night? I think I think we I think we nailed it. Yeah, nailed it. We couldn't have nailed it without you, Kevin. Thank you so much for giving us your valuable time, fellas. Please. No, no. I mean, you know, it was it was so great to get your insights because, uh, you know, as much as as I admire the drumming on this record, uh, I'm not a drummer. We're not drummers, and we don't have the finely tuned ear to hear all the nuances of what Eric Carr's doing. So you brought all that to the fore. Um, we can't thank you enough for being a part of the podcast. And uh, and next week we will take a look at the follow up album where Kiss made a major cosmetic change and uh, they came out with Lick It Up. <laughs>